0: Welcome to the podcast edition of Coaching Through Chaos, bringing you what you need to succeed. Now, here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen
1: and welcome back. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in San Diego, California. Here at the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, I bring you interviews with guests that will inspire, motivate, and empower you. I think everyone has had an experience where an assumption or a stereotype was projected onto them. I know in my life, I've had at least a few experiences that come to mind when I think of this. On the emotionally heavy side of things, I had a highly successful father, but he was a paraplegic due to polio. And I grew up watching how when he was out of his professional arena, many people made assumptions about him that his mind was debilitated just because his body was. Now that was so odd to me as his daughter, because I knew that he was one of the most mentally and physically strong people I knew. He just couldn't use his legs, period. I also grew up with a sister with some learning disabilities that were evident when she spoke. I witnessed a lot of negative stereotyping about her presumed abilities or lack of abilities as well. On the lighter side of things, I had an interesting experience with being stereotyped when I made the move from the East Coast to the West Coast. I was a New Yorker for the first 30 years of my life, and I kid you not, for the first few years, primarily when my accent was still pretty strong. I felt I was greeted frequently by surprise that I was a nice person, even though I was from New York, because us New Yorkers have been stereotyped as being rude. On the flip side of that, when I told my friends in New York that I was packing up to move to California, I was warned it was going to be the land of tree huggers and fruits and nuts. Thankfully, none of this lighter stereotyping was all that serious, but my bicoastal transition did remind me about accepting people as they come to me and making my mind up about who they are individually based on the evidence presented in our interaction, not on the assumptions or stereotypes that might be present. So, what does that all have to do with today's episode? Well, we are going to hear from a person who has been working to shatter stereotypes specifically stereotypes around masculinity. I interviewed Dr. Jocelyn Lair, who through her work found a need to provide men with a space to talk about their authentic experience of being a man, what it means to them, and how stereotypes have hindered or hurt them. To put this need in perspective, it's crucial to understand that stereotypes of what a man should be have been found to influence negative self-concept, identity incongruence, and have been known to lead to engaging in sabotaging behaviors because men that don't fit the quote-unquote norm can feel the need to oppress themselves. Jocelyn is the founder of the Men's Story Project, which is a live platform in which men can authentically speak of their experience of masculinity publicly. Before we get into the interview, though, I want to mention about what's going to go on at the end of this interview. I will do our regular wrap-up and, of course, read out one of our iTunes reviews, but I want to encourage you to listen all the way to the end because we've got a special treat for you. With Jocelyn's permission, we are including audio from the debut installment of the Men's Story Project held in Berkeley, California in August of 2008. This performance is titled Propaganda. Poet L. Abdul Kenyatta reflects on his authentic experience as an African-American man versus the stereotypes. Let's welcome Dr. Jocelyn Lair of the Men's Story Project.
0: You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Muller, bringing you what you need to succeed.
1: So I'm here with Jocelyn Lair, who is with the Men's Story Project out of D.C., Jocelyn, can you tell me what was the origin of the Men's Story Project?
2: Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, So I'm a public health researcher and practitioner, and the Men's Story Project emerged over the course of reflecting on my work with regard to HIV prevention and response, gender-based violence prevention and response. So for many years, I've been doing different kinds of research and community work, For example, I spent nine years co-facilitating an HIV support group, mostly with young gay men and transgender women living with HIV, with adult women living with HIV. I spent some time working in the San Francisco Unified School District with a gang intervention program that was working with middle school boys who were being recruited into gangs. I worked with a rape crisis center in San Francisco for about a year and a half. And over time, when you work in these realms of sexual health, men's violence against women, violence between men, homophobia, transphobia, HIV, like all roads start pointing to this topic of masculinity. Mm -hmm. It becomes very evident that the way that we're teaching boys and men to be men, or the ways that boys and men are pressured to be men, it contributes to a lot of preventable pain and suffering in the world. And yet, where's the public dialogue? So a lot of times we have these phrases in our common parlance, boys will be boys, and that's how men are, and men are dogs, and you know this kind of sense that life is just like that. But the fact is that research around the world is showing that actually if we can shift the needle on social ideas about masculinity, we can actually prevent a lot of pain and suffering in the world. We can actually help to prevent men's violence against women and violence between men and homophobia and reduce gender inequality. You know, men go to the doctor more. Because there's this notion that men don't go to the doctor because they're supposed to be stoic and tough. Yes. And they, and they don't go to the doctor as much as women. They die earlier than women. Mm-hmm. So there are many reasons, uh, both for men's health and well-being and also for the health and well-being of women and people of all genders. That it's really important to basically transform social ideas about masculinity and help people understand that, A, there's something to talk about with regard to how boys and men are raised, pressured, socialized to be men. B, these ideas are changeable, and C, if we do that, we can live in a healthier and more equitable way in the world. And so the the point of the Men's Story Project is to help bring that dialogue into mainstream public spaces through men's own voices and stories, so that it's not a soapbox, but it's a locally relevant, culturally relevant, locally led
1: dialogue. So men are telling their own stories. What kind of response have you gotten to that?
2: It's been overwhelmingly positive. People are telling us that we are doing something revolutionary transformative inspiring something needs to be happening all over the planet so it's been wonderful and that's what has kept me working on this project for the listeners the men's story project is basically a project where men are sharing personal stories in public that challenge notions of masculinity and so these are live events through the lens of their own experience so these are men um groups of you know anywhere between say five and fifteen men or so And they're getting together, creating these productions, where they're sharing personal stories that, on the one hand, celebrate and give thanks for beautiful things in their life and talk about fatherhood and brotherhood and traditions that have been strengthening for them and mentors and role models and people that they're grateful for in their lives and so on. Sources of strength and inspiration. And on the other hand, it's about challenging. So celebrating on one hand, challenging on the other. And they're talking about life experiences that they have had that are linked with notions of masculinity. You know, so they're talking about, for example, with regard to violence, they're talking about their own former witnessing of violence in their home growing up or their own former perpetration of violence against women, against other men, you know, things that they've done in the name of being men uh, that might have also been violent towards themselves. They're talking about substance abuse. They're talking about dealing with homophobia and transphobia on the receiving end. They're talking about how they unlearned homophobia in adulthood because they decided it actually wasn't the best premise. Men have spoken about forgiveness after murder. Men have spoken about challenges with posturing and, you know, trying to act more manly than they actually feel. Right. But there's so much to talk about. So these are live events that happen with an audience. And then when these events get filmed, there's video content. And those, so we've made two films so far, which are available online. And then there's this video online presence of our YouTube channel. The MSP website has videos. And my hope for the project is that it'll spread all over the planet with local groups creating these kinds of productions and public dialogues all over the place.
1: And then filming their events to create social media, to create documentaries with accompanying curriculum and so on. Wow. So big aspirations for it. And can you tell us a bit of the history of it? Like how long has Men's Story Project been around and how has it grown? So the first live
2: event took place in
1: August of 2008 at a cultural center in Berkeley, La Peña
2: Cultural Center in Berkeley, and that event had 16 men sharing personal stories and people folks can check that out online. on our YouTube channel you can see it as a playlist of videos and there's also we actually filmed that live event so it's available as a film which you can check out online. So that event, the room was packed to overflowing. there were people standing, there were people sitting on the floor. it probably violated you know fire code. <laughs> but it was a beautiful experience yeah. and men talked about a lot of different topics there including men's posturing in public restrooms all the way to what it's like for someone to be living with HIV. Someone spoke about having a testicle removed due to testicular cancer and notions of masculinity and what it means to be a whole human being. Two men spoke about their own former perpetration of partner violence and the journey of reflection and change. There were some presenters who were challenging notions, stereotypical notions of black masculinity. There were very powerful pieces shared on many topics, um, and the response there was overwhelming. Like, you need to keep doing this. It was referred to as already historic, you know, and so that was my first indication that we're onto something here. And so I made the, pro- the project part of my postdoctoral work when I was doing my, my postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco Center for AIDS Prevention Studies. So they got themselves a theater director, as a postdoc, which they totally weren't expecting. <laughs> right. <laughs> the point is that this is, you know, this is public health. It's storytelling. It's social action altogether. And that's, you know, when, when you make things direct, personal, locally relevant, locally led, that's a powerful thing. So creating a framework that's informed by research and theory. How do hearts and minds change? How can we shift homophobia in someone's heart? You know, how can we shift someone's thinking about someone's prejudices and stereotypes around people who are disabled and have physical disabilities of different kinds? You know, how can we shift racist beliefs that people may have, you know, prejudices and stereotypes based on race, ethnicity and religion and so on? And so there's a whole research foundation to this project in terms of thinking about that kind of pedagogy. How does storytelling function to affect hearts and minds? And so I've spent a lot of time learning about that. And that's baked into the project in terms of the training guide that I wrote for groups that are going forth to create their own productions, in terms of the training that I give for, for new implementing groups. So thus far, I personally put together, I think it was eight live productions in California and also in Chile, where my family is from. And we filmed two of those live events to make two films. And then I'm happy to say that this past semester, in the spring 2015 semester, the first two independently created productions happen at University of Oregon and at Emory University with students and staff there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And right now, this fall, there are productions underway at Brown University through their men's uh, center. At Emory University, again, Oregon's going to do it if they have the capacity. And then there are a bunch of conversations in progress with groups that are interested in making this happen on their campuses And then also a bunch of conversations with international NGOs also in progress.
1: That first show that you put on in Berkeley, and I think there might have been a video of that. Is that right? Would I have seen that online? That's right. Yeah, there's a film. It's Mm -hmm. very powerful. And just the stories that you got out that people were willing to do right out of the gate was just saying that there's such a need for that, giving men these voices. And you mentioned the research that you're doing. Tell us a bit about that. I know that you found some positive findings in your research. Can you talk about how you're doing it, what you're focusing on, and what the results are so far?
2: Definitely. So we have done a formal qualitative evaluation study of the project where we interviewed audience members and presenters to learn what the Men's Story project did for them. You know, what did they gain and learn from being in the audience from engaging with the content and also in the position of being a presenter. Mm-hmm. And so some of the common findings that we have for both audience members and presenters include a sense of discovery, that there's something to talk about at all. With regard to social ideas about masculinity, that's more for audience members. You know, but wow, there's something to talk about. There's an issue here. Men have gender, not just women who have gender and gendered expectations and norms. And a new understanding that social ideas about masculinity actually, they bear a relationship to health and justice for people of all genders. For audience members, there was also a broadening of their sense of what masculinity can mean or include, and also a greater understanding that the whole thing is a social construct to begin with, that it's a socially made up idea. Mm -hmm. For women, there was a big theme of the humanization of men, coming to understand that men is not just a one big group, you know, that you can lump all men together. So kind of a dimensionalization and a humanization of men and understanding that men have different life experiences and that men also experience pressures with regard to how they're expected to be men that they don't necessarily always feel comfortable with. And then interestingly, what we're finding is this broader amelioration of stereotypes related to race ethnicity, you know, to to socioeconomic status, to physical disability, to sexual orientation and gender identity. So the project seems to be functioning not only as a you know, let's talk about gender kind of project and the gender justice kind of project, but also it's helping to reduce audience members' prejudices and stereotypes around these other aspects of identity, which is really interesting. And then for audience members also, just seeing the presenters as role models for broader life kinds of themes, you know, such as the possibility of forgiveness. The possibility of working together in collaboration with people who used to be literally your enemy on the street, for example. There's this kind of broader role modeling of the possibility of moving on after pain and doing something constructive with the painful experiences that you've had and using those to share your insights with others. and. A sense of inspiration to share their own stories and encourage other people to do the same.
1: Yeah. Did you have any idea the broad spectrum of ideas that would be raised by the Men's Story Project when you started this? I mean, that's wonderful how much everybody is thinking and reflecting and learning from the project.
2: For me, it's really interesting. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Mm-hmm. I
1: have been learning along
2: with this project in real time. So for me, yes, it was. I certainly had the sense that it could be a powerful, impactful thing for men to boldly share personal stories on topics that you don't often hear men speaking publicly about. And I had a sense of the importance of that in terms of creating public spaces where that kind of candid presentation and dialogue can happen. But these specifics are definitely beautiful to see, and that can only emerge when you actually ask people for feedback on what they're gaining and learning. Yes. For the presenters, it's also in this study, I'll just make a couple of quick points. It's been really interesting to see how engagement in this project produces ripple effects in terms of um, an augmentation in their, and for many presenters, an augmentation in their own self-identification as gender justice activists. For example, one guy who participated in the project he then went on to join his campus chapter of NOW, and he co-founded the, his campus's first men's collective, where men got together regularly to discuss masculinity and gender justice issues. And he said you know, that the MSP, that participation in this project, was his entree into gender justice activism. There's another man. Who, it took him a year to decide to participate in the project. He, he shared a story about having grown up witnessing domestic violence in his home. He was watching his mother being abused by her boyfriend for, for years. So it took him a long time to decide to participate in the MSP, and he did. And the positive response that he got, including, you know, just being walking down the street a few days later or weeks later and people coming up to him saying thank you. Wow. About how his story affected them. So he shared his piece. He went on to share it on NPR, Snap Judgment. And then he went on to write a full-length memoir entitled Free Spirit. Uh, which got published by Hyperion Hachette. He went on a national book tour. I think he's actually on a second book tour right now. That's wonderful. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So the point, you know, and there's another presenter in Chile who went on to write a children's book on divorce. His story that he shared was about being an active father and a present father for his daughter, his young daughter in the context of divorce. And so he went on to write a children's book about this and he became a public speaker on active fatherhood in the context of divorce. You know, so so these kinds of ripple effects are beautiful.
1: Absolutely. How wonderful that you've started this and it's just taken on a life of its own for the people that are participating. Along with the actual events that go on, you know, I was looking into the website and it shows that the Men's Story Project is not always just a one-time production. Can you tell us about the different workshops and presentations that you might be giving to various groups and what kind of groups of men might the Men's Story Project present to?
2: So I've been actually, I've been kind of a a traveling lecturer. And so I've been going around to different campuses and giving presentations on masculinities broadly and the Men's Story Project specifically. Uh, And so I've been all over the place, and there's a a partial list on our website of, of conferences and campuses where I've been presenting about this work and the promotion of healthy masculinities more broadly. And those kinds of presentations have ranged from an hour-long keynote presentation for Domestic Violence Awareness Month to a full day-long experiential workshop with 50 participants and three co-facilitators on masculinities in relation to different health and justice issues. You know, so segments on masculinities and sexuality, you know, masculinities and violence, masculinities and men's health. The, the presentations and workshops are very tailorable to the needs and interests of different groups. And I'm very available to travel to campuses, nonprofits, businesses, military, et cetera, and we can co design and tailor a workshop or presentation to their needs and interests. Every presentation I'll say that I've done is the same kind of response that we get from the live presentations or, or along similar veins. You know, that this is really needed, we need more of this, we hope that our campus will create an MSP production ourselves, et cetera.
1: I can imagine that once they hear what it's all about, they get enthused about it. You're giving people a voice that otherwise they didn't have permission to have before is what it sounds like.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like I'm looking at feedback from a presentation I gave last week. And someone wrote here, this was hardcore awareness. Awesome. Please find a way to come back. Men get broken by a lot of harmful people. Then they break because it is all they know. Yeah, I have a whole stack of feedback here. But anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm very available for groups that are interested and people should just feel free to reach out to me.
1: Yes. And we will definitely be including all the contact information in the blog post that goes along with the episode today. How does somebody start a men's story project in their area? What would they do and how can someone get involved? Excellent
2: question. So yeah, so just, just reach out to me. So I've written a training guide and there's a license for groups to use the MSP name and become part of the MSP network. And so when groups become part of the network, we highlight your work on the network page, on the YouTube channel, through social media. So we'll visibilize it uh, to the max. And I'm also available to come to organizations and campuses to do an in-person training. And I'm available to groups as an ongoing resource as you build your project. But it's really just a matter of getting in touch because the whole point of this project is for it to be locally led and created. And what I put together is a framework of some how-to so that groups aren't reinventing the wheel. And there's some content that can serve as a framework, like a sample call for submissions, a sample audience feedback form, a sample press release, um, you know, sample flyer, things like that, to make people's jobs easier.
1: Great. Can you tell us? Is there anything else you would like us to know about the Men's Story Project? Anything coming up, new or branching out? Anything you'd like us to know?
2: Well, so for groups that are on campuses, this is a great time to reach out because if you are interested in creating a production, putting out a call for submissions. Like that, the time frame for that would be pretty soon if you want to create something by the end of the academic year. Emory and Brown, like I mentioned, have their projects ongoing right now. We're putting together a collective resource sharing group online for groups to you know, share lessons that they're learning and support each other in the work. So, yeah, I'm just available and happy to connect with groups that are interested.
1: Great. And can you give us that website for everyone listening?
2: It's www.mensstoryproject.org. So it's all one word, men's story project with two S's, dot org. And from there, you can also link to the YouTube channel, which has a bunch of different playlists from different productions that we've done of video clips.
1: Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Jocelyn Lair from the Men's Story Project. Thank you so much for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, this wraps up our episode. Remember that we've got a special presentation of the performance of propaganda at the end of the audio today. In our next episode, I'm speaking with Dee Wagner, who is a co-author of the book, Naked Online, A Dozen Ways to Grow from Internet Dating. If you've been in the online dating world or have been contemplating it, this is a must listen to episode. I know I like the focus on staying zen in the chaotic world of dating. Our review of the week was posted on December 8th, 2015. You know, these reviews are so touching. I'm really thrilled that the show is sparking such interest. If you want to hear your review on the show, just leave me one on iTunes. Thank you sincerely for this one. Here goes. Coaching Through Chaos is a fabulous series put together by Dr. Colleen Mullen. Each week, various experts in the field of self-help and psychology provide information that not only will improve the lives of laypersons, but also the practice of mental health professionals. I highly recommend tuning in weekly to learn more about maneuvering through chaos while staying true to self and clients. The topics are rich and succulently delivered, so keep a notebook handy as you tune in. That's really nice. Thank you so much for that one. And I wanna thank Dr. B for my audio engineering, artwork, and videos. Remember to check out our new Coaching Through Chaos page on YouTube as well. And I wanna thank BennettSullivanMusic.com for my theme music. I wanna give a little shout out to Bennett and say just how proud I am to see where his career is going. He is currently a featured musician in Steve Martin and Edie Brickell's new musical Bright Star, which opens on Broadway this March. Check my blog this week for an exclusive interview Bennett did with Steve Martin. Great job, Bennett. Can't wait to see more. Now, if you want to follow me between episodes, you can find me on Facebook at Coaching Through Chaos and on Twitter I'm at Dr. Colleen Mullen. You can also sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com. And for doing that, I'll give you a free copy of my ebook, Five Ways. It's 100 Tips for Living a Happier, Healthier Life. That's it for me. Stay tuned for the performance right at the end of this. And I want to say, if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.
0: Actually, I came out here to say some other stuff, but uh, I'm gonna say some other other stuff. (laughs) First of all, this project is about healing. And that's why we're here. That's why we come together. I wanna thank Josie once again. (laughs) When I was a child, I went to my mother and my father and I said, I wrote this poem, I was about seven years old, it was about 53 years ago, I wrote this poem, my mother looked at me and my father looked at me, real strange, because all the poets that my parents knew were gay, okay, County Cullen was gay, Langston Hughes was gay. James Weldon Johnson was gay, James Baldwin was gay. So when I told them I was a writer, they immediately understood that I was gay. So for the next 30 years almost, I never told my parents about my writing a poem, a short story, a play, or any of that thing because That was information that they couldn't deal with. They couldn't handle that. I want to say that most Americans rarely acknowledge the subtle level of propaganda in our daily lives or recognize where our prejudices come from. We have become become comfortable with the notion of you people. What do you people want? What do you people expect? You know who you are. You people don't look right. You people don't smell good. You people are ignorant. You people don't want to work. You people ought to go back where you came from. You people don't share my religious views. You don't pray like I do. You don't speak like I do. Some of you people don't even speak English at all. You people just don't understand. You people don't even have sex the same way as I do. You people get on my nerves. You people are always, always, always complaining. You people are inferior to us. You people can be anybody we can find a difference with. Americans don't like you people. (laughs) You people know who you are. (laughs) Gay people, bisexual people, transgender people, all called you people. African Americans have been you people. Muslims are still you people. Chinese are you people? Japanese are you people? Drop a bomb, kill a bunch, hundreds of thousands of Japanese, those are just you people. Whatever our differences are, we all deserve human rights. We deserve to be known by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, or our sexual or religious preferences, but you people already know that. But as I stand before you this evening, you see a black man, even though my skin is brown. You know that if you had your Crayola box of primary color crayons plus black and white when you were a child, you know that my skin is brown. (laughs) And the people who call themselves white are in fact pink. Now, if I said John McCain or George Bush looked in the paint, no one would be offended. White folks know they paint. That's why they call it little finger. I rest my case. So now I'm trying to figure out what's the purpose of misidentifying Africans as black and Europeans as white. Why would anybody want to purposely misidentify the actual color of people's skin? So you see before you're a black man. That reality is ingrained in the mind of Americans, and you can't change it. And you believe that pink-colored people are white. So don't forget that. <laughs> Pink people are white. I like this handkerchief. <laughs> okay, Now, when the average American sees a, an African man, their mind makes associations to things that they uh, know and have heard about men of African descent. So a man of African descent is no longer a human being. An African man is that image in America's mind. And the media actively supports images of African men in America as negative and unpatriotic media tells us that black men rob, kill, rape, murder. Television says 33% of black men abandon their children. 33% of black men are sent to prison or jail before the age of 50. 60% of black males are born at or below the poverty level. 50% of black males fail to finish high school. A well-informed public would know that regardless of the color of the skin, 90% of people in prison have no high school diploma and come from low-income families. (laughs) So how difficult is it to say Nearly 70% of African American men, most African American men, have never been to jail or prison, and nearly 70% of African American men stay home to support their families. That's that's new information in America. So I'm not here to change anybody's mind, I just want to examine some of the evidence. Okay, now, my great-grandfather was born in 1858, and when I was a child, he was my primary child kid, he's the person who taught me how to tie my shoes, how to read, how to write, how to ride a bike, how to throw a ball. Okay? Um, but I grew up in a house with my father. Okay? And my father grew up in a house with his father. And his father died from a stroke at the age of 42. So my father had to quit high school to help support his 11 siblings. America doesn't tell that story. My father never finished high school, but he was determined that I would. Nobody ever talks about men like my father. I remember that my father was usually tired when I saw him. My father worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. He didn't go to church or believe in miracles. He just went to work every day and we ate every day and we usually paid the rent on time. My father never played with me. His life was always serious. He never played baseball with me, but my great grandfather did. My father lived in an America where men did not hug and kiss their sons. He lived in an America where men don't display affection to their sons. He taught me that real men don't show affection and compassion. Affection between men was not in our comfort zone. I was 40 years old before I ever kissed and hugged my father. My son grew up in a house with me. I taught him that it's a good thing for men to be loving and compassionate. Mm-hmm. My son has six sons and two daughters. And because he is, in your minds, a black man, I guess I need to let you know that his children are all from the same way. He works 10 to 12 hours, four days a week. My son and his sons kiss me and hug me whenever we greet one another. My grandchildren kiss and hug me all the time with absolutely no regard for my replaced knee or the fact that I've had a couple of strokes in the past few years. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody talks about us. We are part of the silent majority of African American men and we are proud to be loving and compassionate men.